0: Welcome. We are in the second week of our Flourishing Faith series, this Lenten series that is a journey to the cross. Last week, we talked about Jesus being at the center of our faith, Jesus and the cross. And I had somebody ask me after last service, they said, when you say the cross, um, what about the empty tomb? And so when I talk about the cross, I mean both the crucifixion and the resurrection both his death and raising to new life. So yes, without the empty tomb, without the resurrection, it would be a tragic death, but the resurrection is key to understanding the cross as well. A quick recap on last week. Jesus was on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion and after that resurrection, and he joins people that are on that journey to the town of Emmaus. And as he's journeying along with them, they're telling them what has happened that this person, Jesus, has died. And the women went and they heard that he was alive and they're confused. And so Jesus stays with them and he unpacks scripture with them. If we can move forward on the slide. And this is what he says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus unpacks their scriptures for them. He unpacks their scriptures, which we would call the Old Testament, and he shows them how it's all pointing to him. He's actually perplexed that they haven't understood this. And so he wants them to really get it. We see later in John, in the Gospel of John, John says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, is in, in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. John is saying that nobody has seen God until they have seen Jesus. Not Abraham or Moses or Elijah, Jesus is the best representation of God and I grew up with this understanding that there was this really you know almost opposing uh, characters in the trinity between the father and the son that the father was somehow angry and hard to please and and the son was the compassionate one and and that Jesus saves us from the father and and that is not the proper way to understand God because Jesus is never doing what the father isn't already doing. The Father forgives because that's part of His character. And so we see Jesus and God, Jesus being that best reflection of God that we have. When we look at passages and we're not under sure, we're not sure how they point to Jesus, because they seem very much not like Jesus, then it's an opportunity for us to pause and to dig in and to reflect how might this point to Jesus? What are we not getting? We talked about every 500 years sort of in in church history, there's this big transition that happens. It's this rummage sale, if you will, an opportunity to bring everything out into the open and see what do we hold on to? What is the key to our faith? What are those things that are most close to our salvation? And we've been singing about them today, that Jesus is our cornerstone, Jesus the cross at the center of our faith. Today, we're taking the next step in this flourishing faith and looking at an evolving faith, but before we do, let's pray. God, I thank you that you are here, and I pray for each one of us, whether we are far or near, whether we are questioning or doubting or just feeling connected to you, that you meet us in that place that we are at. We know that you do, and so we thank you for who you are, may you more fully reveal yourself to us today. Amen. So how does our faith change and grow over our lifetimes? I've talked to people that have described to me different parts of their faith journey, different types of growth, different times where it felt stuck or stagnant or they were in a desert. And today we're going to talk about an evolving faith. But before we do, when you hear the word faith, what comes to mind? What are descriptors of faith? What comes to mind when you hear the word faith? Just call it out. I hear whispers, but I I can't hear the, uh, it's hard with the air con to hear. So just kind of yell it out. Trust. Mm -hmm. What else? Belief. Hope. Anything else? Knowing unknown? Yeah. Surrender? Good, good. All great words. And we're going to unpack some of them today and some of them next week. Um, The first, belief. Each of us would probably say belief is an important part of our faith. And, And we see passages that reflect this. We see Paul's letter to the Romans where he says this, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, this Jesus-centered death and resurrection. For it was with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So yes, belief is important, but we see the limitations of belief in Scripture as well. In James This is what we hear. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. So it's not just that belief in God is important, but what do we do with that belief? Some people have been taught that belief equals faith. And I think scripture wants us to go deeper into that because if belief equals faith, then we're probably nervous to begin to ask questions, to begin to doubt To begin to not sure where my belief is, but belief is much more complex and deep. And in our faith, it's multifaceted. So we'll talk a bit about that this week and next week. Another component, and you guys also mentioned this, is trust. Faith is often talked about in a trusting way. We see this in the Old Testament in Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, this surrender idea that we talked about, and he will make your paths straight. There's this trusting component. It's, yes, I believe Jesus, and actually I'm putting my faith into action by trusting. Paul says it this way, for we live by faith, not by sight, and it carries this idea of trust, trust in who God is. The third component, and there could be many components, and some of you lifted up those, um, is obedience and action. This idea that it doesn't just stay internal. Our faith is not just an idea. Our faith is is not just trust, but it actually changes the way we do our lives. We put it into action, and James highlights this in his book. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. we wanna look at this holistic idea of faith over these next two weeks. It's much more than belief. So the center of our faith last week we proposed is Jesus and his cross, both his death and his resurrection. But sometimes belief can become such a big bucket category for us, we can put everything in there and much more than Jesus and the cross. and, And some of those things maybe are Ideas or questions we're we're not really willing to go to, and maybe it's holding us back, and doubts can become to surface if we are open to it. I have seen this push to have faith equal certainty, which certainty to me is almost the opposite of faith, right? Faith requires this step, this leap, and if certainty is the goal, then we're not allowing ourselves, we're not opening ourselves up to questions, And I've seen people that have had so many questions that they weren't willing to go there. But by the time that one last question went into sort of this backpack of doubts, and it was just too much for them to carry. They couldn't carry it anymore because maybe their questions and doubts, they never gave themselves permission to go after those, to begin to explore them. So instead of certainty, have curiosity towards your faith. When questions emerge or new ideas emerge, explore that. Look at what might be happening there. We could think of faith as as a noun or a verb. We can think of it as this solid object that it just is. But I think if we think of faith as faithing, a verb, an action, something that's in motion, something that might change, something that might evolve, something that might grow, I think we get a better understanding of what faith can look like during our lifetime. And that opens us up to questions, to curiosity, to doubt. There is some interesting research out of the Fuller Youth Institute that says this, when young people have the opportunity to explore their doubts, to ask about their questions, that that ability to ask questions is correlated with greater faith maturity. So the ability to express and raise your doubts is correlated to greater faith maturity. See, it's not doubt that's toxic to faith, it's silence. It's not talking about the questions and the doubt, it's ignoring it that leads to a toxic faith, that leads to many times faith being left behind. We want to create a safe place at community for doubts, for questions, for pondering, for an evolving faith. We see Jesus doing this at the Great Commission, right? The end of Matthew's gospel. His last words to them are the Great Commission. But right before that, there's this curious verse. It's the 11 disciples there. And it says, they worshiped him and some doubted. The 11, some doubted. I was like, wow. Like they were there. They saw the death. They saw the resurrection. They were talking to Jesus face to face. And still some of them were like, hmm, I wonder And what does Jesus do? He says, you know what? Those that doubted step over here. We have a different plan for you. You guys get the Great Commission, right? No, no, he includes all of them in the Great Commission. And that, I find, as incredibly encouraging to us if we're going through a season of doubts or deconstructions or questions. Jesus walks with us in it. So I think we can be gracious to ourselves in our doubts. But I want to especially speak to those that work with young people, those who are parents, When you're confronted with tough questions, don't shut those questions down. Don't ignore them. Don't shame because of the questions or the doubts. Rather, you can say something like, you know what, that's a great question. I don't know, but let's dig into this together. That's a great question. I'm not sure of the answer, but this is something that I found helpful when I was your age or something I found helpful when I was reading scripture that's a great question. I have no idea. Let's, let's talk to the pastor. I'll give you John's email address at the end of the service. <laughs> it can be scary to have questions. It can be scary to hear them from your kids. And maybe your kids' questions stir your questions up. I've never really dug into that. So maybe it's an invitation for you to dig in as well. But I find great comfort in Christ and in Scripture that gives us permission to go there. Because if we want a flourishing faith, we have to be willing to go to the questions that are percolating inside of us. And we find that Jesus meets us where we're at. We see that in Scripture time and time again, and we see it in our own lives, that Jesus will meet with us in that place. But I want to look at two examples of where we see sort of this evolving faith in Scripture, where it starts off one way, this is the rule, and then we see a transformation of that rule in Scripture itself. The first is related to the sacrificial system. And we start in Leviticus. If you want interesting reading, read Leviticus. (laughs) There are some crazy verses in there. And some of them are not PG, PG 13. These are like restricted to mature audiences. Um, So, of course, when I was younger, I went right to those verses, right? Leviticus 1 2 says this when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord. So, it's a whole book on how to bring your offerings, it's a whole book on sacrifices, it's the sacrificial system. And as we've talked about before, this was. Doing sacrifices was common among all the ancient religions we see around the globe. I think people have a sense of there is a God, and I have to give something to this God. And the problem is, is often um, we don't know what to give. And some religions said, well, if, you know, if what you gave before didn't work, your crops still died, you've got to give something more. And often these religions led to child sacrifice. What's the most important thing I could give? Well, this is all I have left, is, is my own child. And God steps into that system and says, I know I can tell you how to have peace with me. You did this, this is what you do. God didn't invent the sacrificial system. He meets the people where they're at and helps them to have peace with him. But we see in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and in the prophets, that this wasn't the goal. The system was not the goal. David says it this way, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. David is understanding, okay, I, I, I'm reading Leviticus, but actually I don't think these are the things you really care about, how much stuff we bring to the altar. You care about something deeper, deeper. Hosea goes after this question as well, and we see it in many of the prophets. Hosea 6 6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgments of God rather than burnt offerings. We see this evolution of, okay, sacrifices, I'm meeting you where you're at. Jesus doesn't say, You know what? Um, this isn't what I want at all. I actually want to, I want sacrifice, I want mercy, right? No, he meets them with what's going to connect with them there, and then he journeys with them. And we see Jesus himself echo these words in Matthew twelve seven. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. He's saying, you didn't understand Hosea 6, 6. He's speaking to the religious leaders. If you had understood those, you wouldn't be challenging and condemning me now. And he takes them through a lesson. He goes back to David when David and his his group ate the sacred bread. They broke the law. They're confronting him and their disciples. Why are you picking and eating grain on the Sabbath? And Jesus is saying, "You're, you're missing the point of that law. You've misunderstood it. You can't interpret the law without compassion. My disciples were hungry, just like David and his followers were hungry, and so they ate the consecrated bread. See, Jesus challenges their understanding. He's trying to draw them forward in their understanding of who God is. We see sacrifices as the starting point, not the end point. God is wanting to do a transformation. Now, why didn't You know why go through all of this? (laughs) Why not just start with Jesus? Right after the fall, why not send Jesus? That you know we could probably do a class on that and, and never get to the bottom of that. It's a question I might ask of God. But maybe there was something with the timing of it. Maybe the world was not yet ready for this. Maybe God had to meet them where they were, and and Jesus was is too far of a stretch. I don't know why, but in God's sovereignty, he knows better than we do. We just sort of read this story and and have to try to understand that God is growing his people, and he's growing us today. God is wanting this internal transformation that leads to it externally living a changed life. The second way I want to hit today is the system of law and justice. See, laws were given to limit revenge, to stop the escalation of revenge. So we see this law again in Leviticus, Leviticus 24, says this, "'Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury.'" Now, there are times where I've wanted this to be true, right? When I ride my bike and that go-go van ran out in front of me and hit me, I thought, I want to put that go-go van driver on my bike, and I get to drive his truck and hit him. That's what this verse is saying the law is, right? They do something to you, you do something to them. You lose your hand, they lose your hand. And maybe that sounds um, barbaric to you, but this was actually an improvement over how they did it back then. You take one of my cattle, I'm taking all of your cattle, right? You kill one of us, we kill all of you. It was an escalating revenge cycle, and this law of reciprocity or retribution is actually an improvement. It's speaking against escalating violence. Now, by the time Jesus was there, most of these things had turned into fines, so you, you, know, you harm somebody's cattle or you know, manslaughter or, or something like that, there was a fine that you paid for whatever the value of that was lost, you had to pay a fee. So you couldn't escalate it. So we see this law of reciprocity in the Old Testament, you're good to those who are good to you, you're bad to those who are bad to you. Help those that can help you. This was kind of the ancient rule of order. And to be honest, a lot of us function this same way as well. Those of you with kids, if somebody in their class invites them to the birthday party, chances are you feel like you want to reciprocate that and invite them to your child's birthday party, even if that wasn't your plan originally. Somebody gives you a gift and you're probably feeling like I got to reciprocate and give them a gift. We see lots of this in our world today today. But actually, Jesus raises the bar from this sort of reciprocity or retribution to a new level. He says, You have heard it said, and we just read that verse in Leviticus eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Jesus deconstructs their previous view. Jesus was the OG of deconstruction, right? He gives us permission to do the same. He's moving them from the law of retribution to ultimately to the golden rule. Now, again, why didn't we start with this? Why didn't God start with this? A good question. We might not ever get to the answer. We can ponder, we can think. But we have to acknowledge in God's sovereignty, he knew the right timing of sending Jesus. Maybe culture had to advance to a certain point. Maybe their understanding of God, they had to know his character. They had to see him as trustworthy. I I don't know. The old way says, I can resist back. Jesus' way says, don't resist. It seems Jesus can reinterpret and reapply scriptures for us. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, we see him do this over and over again with this pattern. You have heard it was said, you shall not murder, which is a law, but I tell you, if anybody is angry with the brother and sister, will be subject to judgment. He's raising the bar. Right? It's not just this external act of murder. He's going after the heart. Again, verse 27, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, he goes from this external thing to internally what is in your heart. And he does this again, verse 33, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Again, kind of that law of uh, reciprocity there. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, I, for an eye is an improvement over the escalation of violence. But Jesus sets a different standard. He wants to meet us where we're at, but he wants to grow us as well. So how do we read scripture? We're going to not talk about that this week. It'll be in 2 weeks. How do we understand the Bible? We go to the Bible as a you know a, an extremely important, you know, inspired thing for us to wrestle with. And so yet we see here there's some different ways of looking at it and interpreting. We're going to get to that if you have that question now. So justice laws were given to limit revenge. But Jesus says in the example of David and the bread and his Disciples picking the grain, he says, interpret the law in light of human need. Jesus' disciples were hungry. David and his followers were hungry. See, Jesus isn't above stooping down to meet us where we are at. And this leads us to the next point. Uh, Mabel uh, was in our first service. Um, She's not here in the second service, but we filmed her. Um, We had her sharing at Thrive. If you want more of her talk, she gave it at last month's Thrive. It's on Stories of Community on our YouTube page. But sort of a real-life example of, of, I grew up believing this, and and now I believe this. And she's talking about uh, patriarchy and egalitarianism. And let's um, see what she says here.
1: About 30, 40 years ago, I don't remember when, but it's a, it's a journey. It's like today's sermon said, your faith is involving unless you are certain about everything. So after a while, I wasn't certain what I heard was correct. I think something happened that made me curious do we really believe in that? Is that a couple, missionary couple from Nepal, was invited to speak to our church? And the administrator of our church, a sister, came to tell me that the original plan was for the two of them to stand up on stage and give a message. But then someone objected because a woman should not stand on the stage and give a message. So. She was not allowed to be part of that sermon, that preaching. And, but she could stand down there and talk to the congregation.
0: We let Mabel up on stage, though.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> I almost wanted to say, can I sit down there? And I thought, I mean, she asked me, Tina asked me. Now, I must have made some noises before, but I can't remember. For her to, of all people, come and ask me. And that was before the internet. So there weren't that much resources. I kind of like forget about the whole thing until many years later. Then I started to think about these things. The more I think about it, the more I question it. And then I started to read books, and then I'm still learning. I can't say that I'm certain about everything. i certain am not more curious, mm-hmm. less certain about everything that I have been taught. So now when I listen to sermons, I usually would question, am I listening to what is true, or are mm-hmm. there gray areas?
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Mabel, for sharing that. Um, Maybe one more short story from you. How did this look like in your home environment as well with you and your husband? Some of his journey as it related to the church.
1: Okay. Uh, About five or six years into the marriage, my husband left the church. I don't think he ever left the faith, but he certainly didn't go to church for like 25 years. And then after 25 years, he came back to God. He came back in a big way. So he wanted to go to all the Sunday schools, all the fellowship, Cantonese, Mandarin, doesn't matter. (laughs) So he wanted to go. And then um, 10 years after his retirement, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. So he came to me to ask me all the spiritual questions like, am I saved? Am I going to heaven? and then he started to ask me a lot of other faith questions so i was definitely his spiritual leader mm. regardless of what you have been taught that only the husband can be the spiritual leader that cannot be more false mm. and mm. so that was and during the 25 years that he didn't go to church how could he be my spiritual leader I went to church with the two kids, so Marsha is still a Christian. My daughter is a pastor, so, I mean, I brought them up in the faith, not my husband. Mm -hmm.
0: Her her full talk is on our YouTube page, and you can go in and listen to it. And we spoke on this topic, I think, two years ago. We gave two weeks to it um, because... Eric and I grew up in a church that did not have women pastors, and you know we were taught from scripture that women shouldn't be pastors. And then I go to college and I see other Christians that actually have women as pastors, and so I dug into it afresh, and 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 my views began to evolve. And even though when my view evolved, it was actually you know to see and to sit in and have a female pastor at first was I was just totally not used to it. It took a while to actually get used to that reality. And I'm thankful that at Community Church, you know, we have a long history of having female pastors here and we celebrate that. So if you want to dig into more, um, do uh, scan the QR code or go on to our YouTube page and it'll take you to that place. Our vision at Community Church is love God, love others and do good. And We try to talk about it several times during the year, and it gets at what Jesus says when he summarizes, you know, the first and greatest commandment, love God. The second, love your neighbor. And he gets at this love your neighbor really well in Matthew 7, 12. He says this, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This golden rule As people reflect, you know, globally, the golden rule, this is where it comes from. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's not easy, but we don't do it alone, church. We do it in connection with God and with one another. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you meet us where we are. I thank you that you draw near, and as we draw near, you meet us in that place. I thank you that, God, you have an incredible capacity to stoop down to meet us where we're at, that you grow us from one place to another. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.